south on the A23 toward Rygate, to a manor house on the edge of London, a place known among my fellow journalists as the War School. Here in rural England, journalists learn from former elite forces soldiers how to duck and dive in deadly games of hide-and-seek, or how to stanch the bleeding of a fallen colleague whose stomach has been blown open or eye dislodged. His screams are amateur dramatics, and the torn flesh is bred soaked in animal blood, none of which makes it any less a matter of life and death. Because of the number of journalists who have died in the past decade in war zones, news organisations now realise they must try to protect their employees, at least with knowledge, and sometimes with arms, too. "'You know this is a wild goose chase,' Finney shouted over the children's yelling. I was driving, and he was in the passenger seat, stoically ignoring Hannah, who was stretching out her legs to kick the back of his seat. If there was anything to find, Coburn would have found it six months ago when she disappeared. Finney can be pretty scathing about the incompetence of his colleagues, even about DCI Coburn, who headed the investigation into Melanie's disappearance. But the police force is his family, not mine, and I didn't want to get into a fight. I promised Melanie's parents. I can't not go. Corporation camerawoman Melanie Jacobs had disappeared on January 10, a Friday six months earlier, from the war school, which is officially called Hasprep. The corporation employs thousands of people. It is like a very little country, or a big school. You have a few colleagues who are blood brothers, lots of people you know to say hi to, and legions you know by reputation only. I worked just once with Melanie, but I was impressed by her seriousness and attention to detail. Since then I have heard colleagues speak with approval, and sometimes with disbelief, about her bravery in war zones. Shortly after she covered a particularly bloody civil war, I saw her in the canteen and went over to say hello. Melanie was tall and agile and strong. She let her dark hair grow long and straight, and when she was working she generally tied it back behind her head. That was when you could see that her left ear bore not one, but a row of six gold studs. She nodded in greeting, but she did not smile. I looked into her eyes and saw that something had changed. It must have been hard, I said. I don't know why I said it. It's not the sort of thing journalists normally say to each other. It's a job, she muttered, shrugging. I don't know if she intended it in the way that it hit me, but I walked away bathed in guilt. I had the same job as her. I'd started out as a television producer, but I'd learned how to operate a camera, and sometimes I filmed my own material. We were both journalists. But I'd said no to war zones with scarcely a second thought, because I am the single mother of two small children. Melanie had no children to hold her back, and she had taken the decision to risk her own life day after day to record human atrocity. It seemed to me that this was the purest form of journalism, to put the factual record above one's own survival. I did not know Melanie well enough to ask her motivation. I could not believe that she sought glory. Camera operators do not in general achieve glory, however good their work. But could such a dangerous decision be entirely selfless? On another occasion I bumped into Melanie with her parents at King's Cross, so when she went missing a few weeks later I telephoned them to see if there was anything I could do to help. Melanie's mother, Beatrice, worried sick but polite nevertheless, thanked me for my concern and asked simply that I keep in touch, which I did. 
Beatrice and Melanie's father Elliot lived in Durham, and Elliot's health had deteriorated rapidly after his daughter's disappearance. Beatrice did not like to leave him for more than a few hours, but the lengthy train journey to London was more than he could stand. She was the sort of person who by instinct would have dug around to find out what had happened to her daughter, but her circumstances made her feel impotent and cut off. She was frustrated at the lack of news and upset that the police investigation seemed to be running out of steam. DCI Coburn tells me there's no evidence that she's dead. He says it's possible she's had a nervous breakdown and that she just upped and went, but I find that hard to believe of Melanie. Desperately apologetic, she'd asked me whether I would mind keeping my ears open within the corporation for any word at all on what might have happened to Melanie. Who have you spoken to inside the corporation? I asked Beatrice. There must be someone who's the contact point for the police. There is a man called Ivor Collins, Beatrice said, who has been very kind. He came up on the train to see us, and he brought us Melanie's things. He talked with us for a long time, but he seemed to be completely mystified too. He said he would let us know anything he found out, but... Her voice trailed off unhappily. He hasn't contacted you? I was incredulous. Oh, yes, he has. He's rung us every week. He's been very kind, but he hasn't had any news for us. Maybe he feels until there's something definite he can't tell us. But that's not what I want. Melanie had friends. She had colleagues. They must be talking about her disappearance. People must have theories. There must be rumours. I want... Her voice cracked and she fell silent. I could hear her trying to control herself, breathing hard and slow into the telephone. She wanted what I would want. She wanted every tiny speck of information. She wanted to know she had left no stone unturned. She wanted to know she had done everything she could for her daughter. I knew the name, Ivor Collins. Usually you glimpse him in the distance like a star in the night sky. Occasionally, if there is a morale issue, Collins visits the rank and file to dispense encouraging words, pat backs and nose around to see where or with whom the trouble lies. When I had spoken to Beatrice, I looked Ivor Collins up in the directory and found that he was H-C-P-R-H, which stood for Head of Corporate Policy, Perens, Resources, Comma, Human, Close, Perens. The next day I made an appointment to see him and found his comfortably appointed office in the far reaches of the management empire. He greeted me with a warm handshake and invited me to sit in an armchair opposite his. He had startling blue eyes and snowy white hair cut very short. His body was narrow and his long face seemed even longer because of its unusual thinness. He looked like an exclamation mark. You wanted to talk to me about Melanie Jacobs, he said, cocking his long head to one side. Her parents are frustrated by the lack of news, I told him, and they asked me to keep my ears open. He nodded thoughtfully. And what have you learned? You're the first person I've asked. Well, he heaved a sigh and spoke in a voice that was so low it was almost not there. Whether this indicated a desire for ultimate deniability or simply a throat infection, I could not tell. I find it hard to speak to Beatrice and Elliot every Monday, as I do, when I can't tell them any more than they've read in the papers. 
All of us here have been helping the police in whatever ways we can, but there has been little to say to them. Melanie was supremely brave, extremely talented, and we valued her highly. We have no idea why she disappeared. I left Collins's office ten minutes later, empty-handed. As I trod the length of corridor back to my office, I felt increasingly dissatisfied. Collins had not dismissed me. He had not tried to stop me asking questions, but he had met each of my inquiries with a sad shake of the head and an apology that there was nothing new he could tell me, his blue eyes filled with concern that looked genuine. Surely, I thought, it was impossible that Collins had no more information now than the day Melanie vanished. I simply could not believe it. And, as I thought it over, the whole thing began to ring alarm bells in my head. When Adam Wills had been killed, I had become chief suspect, and the corporation had failed to stand behind me. Was the corporation now abandoning Melanie to her fate as it had abandoned me? I had been a suspect in a murder investigation. It was perhaps understandable that my employer should want to pretend I had nothing to do with them. But there was no such stain on Melanie's reputation. The next day Beatrice rang me and asked whether I would mind terribly going to Hasprep and checking one last time whether there was something, anything, that the police might have missed. I agreed immediately. If Collins was not going to stand up for Melanie, then I would have to. I found myself fired by an angry zeal that, had I been honest with myself, I would have realized had more to do with what had happened to me nearly two years earlier than with what had or had not happened to Melanie. Now, as hedgerow gave way to high brick wall topped with razor-sharp wire, I recognized the war school from the TV coverage of Melanie's disappearance. Hasprep had not allowed journalists inside to film in their grounds at the time, nor had it allowed its staff to give interviews, with the exception of the director, Andrew Bentley.